How do we determine the dividing line between areas of so-called Christian liberty and non-negotiable Bible standards and principles? Dr. David K. Bernard answers this important question on this episode of Apostolic Life in the 21st Century. Welcome to Apostolic Life in the 21st Century, a podcast dedicated to helping modern-day believers live out the teachings of the first century church. This podcast is part of the teaching ministry of Dr. David K. Bernard. Dr. Bernard has dedicated his life to studying the Bible and helping believers apply its message to their daily lives. In Apostolic Life in the 21st Century, Dr. Bernard answers your questions about what the Bible teaches and how those teachings apply to everyday life. Thank you for joining us for this episode. On several past episodes of this podcast, you've responded to questions by citing the New Testament uh, reference that Paul made to something called Christian liberty. That prompted one audience member, a pastor, to reach out to us and ask the question of how do you determine where the dividing line is between Christian liberty and biblical mandates or what we might call biblical standards? How do we negotiate that line between those two and determine which where, where something falls? Well, when we talk about Christian liberty, let me, first of all, give you a reference. I have a book called Practical Holiness, and it has a chapter on legalism, which is something we should avoid, salvation by works or living by rules and regulations. And it has a chapter on Christian liberty. What is our liberty in Christ? And also the book of Romans deals with the subject at length. So I have a book, a verse by verse commentary called the message of Romans. So it will deal with Christian liberty specifically in detail from Romans, especially Romans 14, uh, which I'll refer to. So there, our life in Christ is characterized first and foremost by freedom, liberty. And what do we mean? Freedom from sin. We're no longer bound by sin. We're no longer forced to sin. We can actually resist sin and live a holy life. So freedom here does not mean license. I do everything I want to do, even things that are detrimental to me. No, it's like a prisoner. You're set free from prison. Does that mean the next day you can go back to jail? No, you're free from prison. And so you, the implication is you don't, you won't do things that will cause you to go back and nobody can make you go back. So freedom from sin, also freedom from the law. Although the law was good, it taught us what was right. It taught us that we were sinners that because because we constantly failed to keep the law. It taught us that we needed a Savior. Uh, but the law itself did not give us the power over sin, and the law was not our Savior. And living by the law couldn't save us. So the law was good for its purpose. It was pointing to Christ. Now that we have Christ, we're not under the law. Now we're still must follow godly teachings, but we're not under the law of Moses. So there's freedom from the law. And then, of course, there's freedom from the penalty of sin, which is death. And then uh, there is freedom from the ceremonies that are no longer binding on us. And so Christian liberty means our basic orientation is I'm a child of God. I'm full of the Holy Spirit. I can now live a holy life and I have freedom. I have freedom in my choices. I can choose A or B. You know, I can choose my job, my career, uh, my marriage partner. Uh, I can choose my the way I'm going to serve God. Now, all of that, of course, is in scriptural boundaries. So when we talk about Christian liberty, it doesn't mean freedom to go back to sin because that would be the opposite of liberty. I use the example sometimes uh, you're driving along the cliff and uh 
if you go off the cliff, the law of gravity will cause you to plunge and crash and die. So does freedom mean I'm free from gravity? I can ignore it. I'm going to drive off the cliff if I want to. No, that's foolishness because it kills you. So in that context, freedom, first of all, means knowledge. You know the law of gravity exists whether you like it or not, and you can't repeal it no matter what you say. And you have the power not to drive off the cliff. So if you are forced to go off the cliff, you would not be free. If you're ignorant, you didn't even know there was gravity, and you drove off the cliff and ignorant, we would not call that free. So in that analogy, freedom means, first of all, you know right and wrong. You're not ignorant. And second of all, you have power to do what's right and beneficial. So our liberty in Christ, first of all, we now know God's will. We know what sin is so we can avoid it. So it's not freedom to sin. That's not liberty. And then we have power. So it'd be horrible to know what's right, but still have no ability to do what's right. So Christian liberty, first of all, means the knowledge of right and wrong and the ability to do what's right so as to preserve your own life. So Galatians 5 says, brethren, you've been called unto liberty, but do not use that liberty as an occasion to the flesh because that would destroy your liberty. So Christian liberty does not mean we have liberty to sin. So anything that the Bible teaches us, we're still obligated to follow that. So even under, we're not under the law of Moses, but the great commission that Jesus gave in Matthew 28, uh, 18 through 20, verse 20 says, about the converts that, that the disciples would make, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Uh, Jesus also said in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. So it's foolish to say we're not under law, therefore we have no obligations. No, we're not under the law of Moses. We've been set free from that. The law couldn't save us. It only taught us that we were sinners The law uh, and, and pointed the way to Christ. But we still have commandments to obey as far as living a godly life. And if we violate those commandments, we go back to the life of sin. We break our fellowship with God. The result is death. The ultimate result is eternal death, the lake of fire. That's not freedom. That's the exact opposite of freedom. So whenever we talk about Christian liberty, we're talking about a, a, a pastor of a local church. Um, he will give some teachings, but he will give some leeway where people can make their own personal choices. And even as the larger fellowship, we have some fundamental beliefs and teachings, but we give pastors certain leeways how they're going to teach it. And we should. That's called Christian liberty. So what Christian liberty does not mean, it does not mean liberty to sin. It does not mean liberty to, to violate the specific teaching of Scripture. Now, when I say specific teaching, some things are taught in so many words. Some things are taught in principle. Um, so the Bible says, don't lie, don't steal. So you can't say, well, I have Christian liberty to be a thief. No, I have Christian liberty to lie. No, all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire. The book of Revelation says, now the Bible says dress modestly. Well, what does that mean? Well, to some extent that's subjective. Uh, and so there, therefore pastors will try to give guidelines of what's appropriate, but even individuals have to decide what's appropriate in different contexts. So there is an area of Christian liberty. But to say we can ignore the command to dress modestly, that's wrong. So to say there might be differences among individual believers or even among churches as to how to implement that, there is an allowable discretion there. But to say we're just going to abandon that 
Uh, the Bible teaches us not to wear ornamental jewelry. Well, some may say, well, I think a wedding ring is ornamental. I don't want to wear it. Another person might say, well, I feel like it's a very important symbol, especially in my culture. And if I'm not wearing it, people think I'm living in adultery and uh, or fornication. And so if I find something that's moderate, I feel like I should have that choice. Well, that could be an example where both people are saying, we want to follow the scriptural teaching. But in my context, my life, my culture, my city, my church, my society, I feel choice A is the best way to fulfill that scripture. Another person says, well, I think choice B. We can have differences even within the same fellowship because now if somebody says, I don't believe that scripture applies, I'm not going to follow it, I'm going to disobey it, well, then you shouldn't be part of our fellowship. So the guidelines would be what scripture teaches the guidelines would be what's sinful or not. So Christian liberty properly applies to matters that are not dealt with in Scripture or that are explicitly allowed differences in Scripture. Or another way to say it, there it's dealing with non-moral matters, not things of morality, uh, but non-moral things. And so let's look at the specifics. Romans 14, uh, let's, the whole chapter is excellent in regard, but here's some, uh, starting with verse five, one person, well, no, maybe I should start with verse one, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. So Paul's given the example, really in the church, we don't have the dietary laws of the Old Testament. So one person, and Paul is in, in indicating, which is correct, you, you have liberty to eat what you want. You can eat pork if you want, um, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. So someone who feels like, you know what? And now it goes beyond just the Jewish law of pork, but maybe this guy for some religious reason thinks I shouldn't eat any meat. I should only eat vegetables. So Paul calls him weak because that's not really accurate. It's not really required, but even in that case, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. So the person who is doing something which is allowable shouldn't ridicule the person who thinks, man, I better not eat pork or I better not eat any meat. And and there could be people in the church like that, that like someone raised in a Hindu tradition, even though they become a Christian, they may not want to eat beef because it just is against their culture. Or I like to use the example of Americans. I grew up in Korea where it was acceptable to eat dog meat, especially in the summer and the hot time it was considered healthy. Well, I tell the average American, you're free in Christ. You're not under the law. I would like to serve you a dog cutlet. Would you partake? Well, no. Well, what's the matter with you? You don't believe in liberty? Well, but I just don't want to. Even if it's not a sin, this is not something I wish to do. So I shouldn't make fun of you. Say, what's wrong with you? You don't believe in liberty in Christ? I shouldn't make fun of you. On the other hand, the one who doesn't participate shouldn't judge the other. So you're eating meat. You're a big sinner. You're, you're a hypocrite. You're going to hell because you're eating pork. Wait a minute. That is not a moral issue, and it's not a requirement of the New Testament. So therefore, the one who participates should not despise or ridicule the abstainer. The abstainer should not judge the participator. 
And now here's some pretty strong language. Verse four, who are you to judge another servant to his own master? He stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems, and now he gives another example. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. He who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. And then he goes on to talk about, but we should be careful of not hurting a brother. So even though, let's say, I've got some new Christians and all their life they've been taught that it's a sin to eat pork. Well, if I just suddenly eat pork, even though that's allowable and scripture doesn't forbid it, they look at me, you just sin, you just compromise. Well, if my leader is sinning, well, maybe he's a hypocrite. I should just leave the church or maybe I should commit other things. And so you do have to be careful of your impact. So don't use your liberty to hurt one another. So going back to Galatians 5, we have liberty, but not for the flesh. And it also says, but serve one another in love. So don't use your liberty in a way that would hurt someone. So Paul goes on to explain back here in Romans 14, 7, for none of us lives to himself, no one dies to himself. Uh, and then he explains that. Then verse 10, but why do you judge your brother or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And then he goes into verse 12. So then let each of us, so then each of us shall give account of himself to God. God will be the judge. Therefore, verse 13, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this not to put a stumbling block or to cause to fail or a cause to fail in brother's way. King James says offense. So some people say, well, that offends me, so you should abstain. But that's really not the context. It's The offense is something that causes a person to stumble. So I, if I'm a mature Christian and I don't think you should wear a tie, and I say, you know what, that offends me. You should not wear a tie because it's offensive to me. Now, that's not what it's talking about. But it's talking about the example I gave. If I'm a new Christian... And I see you eating pork. I say, wow, I can't believe that preacher is living in sin. What has the church come to? Well, you should care about that. And Paul goes on to say, you know what? If eating meat would offend my brother, cause my brother to stumble, to backslide, lose his faith in God, I won't eat meat the rest of my life. Now, he's not really assuming that would be required, but he's just giving an illustration. So the offense is not the stronger brother getting mad, trying to force another person to conform to his version of what's appropriate conservative Christian values, but not giving offense means a, a, a weak Christian, a Christian with lacking full knowledge or a new convert, really misunderstanding your Christian liberty and causing them to lose their faith in God and backslide. Well, you should be careful not to do that. So let me summarize. We have liberty in non-moral matters, we have liberty where uh, the Bible is silent or the Bible expressly gives uh, discretion. And the examples we have here in Scripture of eating of certain food, uh, the um, observance of certain days. So some people observe certain holidays, some don't. Now, we should not participate in pagan worship. But if some person says, well, I think I can participate in a holiday because I'm doing it under the Lord, we should respect that. 
if someone else says, you know what, it has too many associations with paganism or with my past, uh, and it's negative, so I'm not going to participate. Well, we should respect that. Someone says, and I had this case in, in my church in Austin, we, we dealt with these things, especially with people coming from different backgrounds, converts. Uh, I had uh, some converts that said, you know, we've learned that for reasons of health, we shouldn't eat meat. And we read Genesis the way we read it. In the very beginning, God gave a vegetable diet. So we want to go back to God's original plan. So anybody that eats meat, they're, they're, you know, they're wrong. I, I had to pull them aside and say, wait a minute. If that's your conviction, fine. But others have a different conviction, fine. And we all have a potluck dinner. You can pick the vegetables, and but somebody else picked the meat. Eventually, as they matured, they maintained their diet. But whenever we came together as the church, they would eat whatever was served because it was no longer a matter of, in their mind, of sin or compromise. It was a matter of what was appropriate. And so for the unity of the church, they wouldn't make a, a, an issue of it. And I think that's a mature approach. Now, also... Uh, an issue came, and you see this in 1 Corinthians 6 through 10, further discussion of Christian liberty. And this is in the context of food offered to idols. So a big issue back then was typically people would offer food, especially meat, at the temple and, and to idols. But, of course, the idol couldn't eat it. The priest would take some for them, but some the priest would resell on the market. Or some, it might be just a banquet where they pray and offer to the idols, but then they would partake. And so the question becomes, what if you go to somebody's house and you don't know, they may have dedicated all the food in the house to an idol, or maybe they went to the temple and they bought the meat back from the temple that had already been given to an idol. Well, should you eat of it or not? And so Paul says, look, an idol is nothing. An idol has no power over us. So if you if you eat some food that somebody offered to an idol, it's not going to hurt you. Don't worry about it. Don't ask questions. Just eat it. But if the person makes a point, I offer this food to the idol. I want you to eat this idol food. Well, then you shouldn't. Not because it'll hurt you, but because you are now condoning idolatry. It's not for your conscience sake. It's for their conscience sake. So that unbeliever or maybe that new convert sitting next to you will think, wow, you are worshiping the idol. You're giving honor to the idol. And he said, now, actually, there are demons who receive the worship of the, the, the given to those idols. So if you in any way look like you are condoning or participating in idolatrous worship, then you are compromising your identity. And so Paul gives, if you read carefully, Paul gives four guidelines that even when you have Christian liberty, so you don't have Christian liberty to steal or to lie or to wear immodest clothing. But what if you say, well, in this one area of eating certain food, I have Christian liberty. I can do whatever I want. But there are four tests. Number one, and you can see this in 1 Corinthians, if you read the whole book, but especially chapter 6 through 10. Number one, is it beneficial? Is it good for me? So if something is made hurtful for me, even if it's not sinful, I need to be careful. My body is the temple of God. I'm the steward. So the first question, even in exercising my liberty, is it beneficial? Number two, can it gain power over me? If it has the power to overcome me. Number three, will it harm others? Will it be a stumbling block as we previously described? Would somebody else misunderstand and cause them to lose their faith? And then number four, can I give God glory? So let me give an illustration. 
uh, I think Christians should not smoke or use tobacco. I think it's actually sinful because there are scriptures that talk about our bodies, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so I, I think that's wrong. But let's just say somebody says, you know what? I think I should be able to choose in that regard. I don't, there's no, obviously there's no scripture says thou, thou shalt not smoke tobacco products because it was unknown in the ancient world. It's known to the new world. But so what if somebody says, you know, you can't make me. I would say, well, wait a minute. That's not the end of the subject. Number one, is it beneficial? Well, no, 400,000 Americans die every year because of tobacco. So if anything is harmful, that, that's, it's no. So even Christian Liberty says, no, you shouldn't. Second, can it gain power over, over me? Yes. Tobacco is one of the, nicotine is one of the most addictive substances more than uh, drugs. So yes, it could cause you, you know, to affect your ability to fast, to pray, to do the will of God. Yes, it can gain power over you. Number three, can it harm others? Absolutely. Even if I thought I will never get sick and I can control it and I can use it in moderation. What about my kids? What about young people in the church? What about converts? What about people who struggled? Uh, you know, even if the only reason was for their sake, it'd be worth my Christian example. And then can I give God glory? Can I really honestly say as I'm partaking, I'm praising God, thanking God for this? I don't think so. So I use that simple analysis of an, hopefully for us, a non-controversial subject to say, here is how you can ask these four questions. Um, so to summarize, I think within local churches, there should be certain discretion, and the pastor can help guide this. He can teach, here's what's biblical, here's what's absolute, and here's what I'm asking everyone to do to implement biblical principles. So even though some things may not be spelled out in scriptures, like how long your dress should be, you know, you have to have modesty, and the pastor can say, here is how we define modesty in our context, and I'm asking for the sake of unity and a clear witness, clear example. I'm asking everyone in the church to follow these guidelines for modesty. I think that's a valid point. But the pastor may also say, there's some things I'm not going to teach on because they're not scriptural, or there's some things I'm going to give you discretion. Like sometimes there are places we might go for entertainment or recreation that in one city might be wholesome. Another city might be greatly associated with drunkenness and and sexual immorality and so on. So in one context, we may say it's okay to participate in a certain event or sport or activity, but in another place, it's advisable not to. Or sometimes the pastor may say, I'm going to give you discretion of which places would be wholesome, or maybe the pastor won't even say anything. So I think within a local church, there's a certain discretion. So where there's that discretion, each member should not attack and judge one another. Likewise, when it comes to churches across the fellowship, there should be a certain leeway. So we have the articles of faith. We have position papers. It spells out in pretty strong detail. I think we should all follow those. But places where scripture is silent and even our organization has not taken an official position and put it in writing and everybody voted for it, well, then I think we should allow discretion. So one pastor should not attack another pastor in those areas of discretion. We need a mature, wholesome attitude for Christian liberty. That doesn't mean everybody go to the lowest common denominator of the, of the newest convert or the newest church. We could disagree, but that doesn't mean we have to attack, ridicule, condemn, judge. We can say, you know what? Some things we have to leave to God to judge. Now, if it's a harm to our local body or harm to our fellowship, we have to address it. But there are certain things we have to have a certain degree 
of respect, tolerance of differences, and Christian liberty. I think a mature understanding for a local church and a mature understanding of a fellowship is very important. We can't split over every preference. So I would like to say there are scriptural convictions that we should have. So whether I feel convicted or not doesn't matter. Scripture teaches it. I need to follow it. Gender distinction, modesty of dress, and so forth. Those are scriptural teachings. Uh, but there are personal convictions, which I think is advisable for me. And God may have indeed given it to me, but that doesn't mean it's for everybody else. And even a local church, the pastor may feel led in that environment and what God has called that church to do and to be, to ask the church to rally around certain points. But if it's not a scriptural teaching, we have to relegate it to a personal conviction or a pastoral preference. And I think even teaching as such has greater integrity and a greater probability that people will gladly follow it when you're very clear and honest. Here's what I believe the Bible requires. Here's a biblical an application of a biblical principle that I'm asking everybody to do. As opposed to here's a pastoral preference that I want you to follow, and here's a personal conviction that I follow. When you have those categories defined, people are more likely to trust your overall leadership and teaching. So I do believe it's very important to teach on the local level and certainly to implement on the general level this concept of Christian liberty. Thank you for listening to this episode of Apostolic Life in the 21st Century. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment to give us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. We also appreciate it when you share apostolic life in the 21st century with a friend or family member. And make plans to join us again next time as we look at how the Bible applies to everyday life.